Hi, and welcome to Journeys to Belonging podcast with host Dr. Eileen Winokur, featuring awesome educators and leaders who share their journeys, advice, and personal stories about feeling a sense of belonging. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Journeys to Belonging. On this episode, I'm joined by Ken Shelton, and I'm really excited about having Ken on because for several years, I've, I've followed him on social media. I admire his ability to share his stories as models and examples of what we can do to ensure every adult and student in our building and in our lives is valued, included, and accepted, all those belonging words. Last spring, Ken appeared as a guest on Courageous Conversations in EdTech that I co-host with Melody McAllister and Victoria Thompson. And that was so interesting to have you there. There are so many facets to your journey, Ken. I can't wait to get into today's episode. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. And it's a pleasure to be able to spend more time with you. Yes recording, chatting, and hopefully for your audience, they will be able to gain some additional insight into belonging as well as examine some of their own thoughts and practices uh, aligned with the purpose of our conversation. So Absolutely. Uh, thank, you. thank you for thinking of me and thank you for having me here. Thank you for making me feel like I belong here. Oh, that's wonderful. That makes me feel really, really good because I've always felt that sense of belonging from you because you're so inclusive. Yes, you know, you have those courageous conversations and sometimes you push those buttons, but you always do it right. in a way that makes everybody feel like they can participate. So I'm excited to get into it, but I didn't really say that much about you. There's so much to you. So please share with our listeners what you're up to and, and you know, what's important to you right now. Okay, I appreciate that. So for the listeners, I am a Los Angeles based educator. I formerly taught in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Most of my career in the classroom was at the middle school level. And I did not feel that I belonged oh. in the classroom. And uh, that was due in no small part to um, the fact that I was the only black male educator at every school that I worked at. Yeah. And because of that, that's ultimately one of the primary drivers for me leaving the classroom. And it's transitioned to working in a company after that, of which, uh, again, I didn't feel any sense of belonging. I would say within that company, for the six years I worked in that company, I was the only uh, Black employee for uh, four of the six years. And so now I, I am independent. I work on my own, which is great because if I don't feel a sense of belonging, then I don't have anyone to blame but myself. And um, but but ultimately, the work that I do now is really aligned with, I, I would say, my my core belief in our social institutions and especially education. Uh, I still am a staunch advocate for the use of uh, technology and education, uh, but that is. Um, it's expanded beyond just simply the use of technology. It's around how are we using it? How does it uh, dismantle barriers? Uh, one of the things that I share in my workshops and many of my talks now is the rejection of the word disrupt, uh, because disrupt by definition means a temporary change to something. And the key word in that definition is temporary. 
Uh, and if you think about for anyone who is a classroom teacher, if you have a child that is disruptive, what are the actions and steps that you take, if you will, to mitigate the effect of that disruption to go back to what you were doing prior to it? So for me, it's really looking at our systems and institution and how we need to really scrutinize things that need to be uh, uh, effectively dismantled uh, and in some cases abolished right. and do it in ways that are aligned with the learner experience that we would want our students to have and the educator experience we want the adults to have. So that's also the basis of a book that I'm writing right now that my goal is to have it across the uh, finish line by the end of this calendar year. Mm -hmm. But ultimately that's the work that I do. It's around diversity, equity, inclusion, organizational culture, anti-bias and anti-racism. And, and of course, all of that is embedded in uh, within culturally sustaining pedagogies. And then all of that requires the use of digital technologies right wow yeah there's a lot to unpack there and we won't have time to unpack it all but i'm hoping to be able to unpack some of those salient important parts of that and that's really interesting you talk about disruption we won't really get into that too much but it's something that i'm going to ponder after we're done today the whole I idea of disruption versus dismantling and because you know, I've always felt like a disruptor, but you're right. That just brings us back to where we were after the disruption. And that's absolutely not where we want to be. You and I agree no. definitely about that. So the first question I always ask my guests is when I say the word belonging or feeling a sense of belonging, and you've touched on it a little bit, but I'd love for you to, to get into a little bit more. What's the first thing that comes to mind or what's the most important thing that comes to mind for you? If I may, I would define belonging as being able to navigate a variety of social spaces of which you don't feel othered. Mm. Wow. Literally that simple. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Can we put that on a poster? Yes, we can. <laughs> and, make, and make sure you're, you get credit. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. Yes, it's true. That whole idea of othering is, is something that we need to dismantle. Yeah. That's that's the first thing we need to do. Wow. So what I want to get into now is you know, you train, you're, you're a consultant, a keynote speaker about many topics. Some of them you mentioned in your intro, including race, equity, culture, inclusion, diversity, and all are connected to belonging and student achievement. Yep. So what should the listeners know in terms of how all of that that you speak about affects our students and their ability to achieve and how it affects teachers and educators in their work. So first for students, their ability to achieve, and then for educators, their ability to be able to, like you said yourself, you left jobs because you felt othered. Right. Uh, and that's a great question. And it really connects to uh, the whole idea around my stance is I can tell a lot more about the potential uh, for student success based on the culture of a classroom, a school or a district than anything else you do. Doesn't matter what technologies you may have access to, wow. doesn't matter what pedagogical approaches you have. So when it comes to the students, the main thing is the way our brains work. Mm -hmm. If we are in survival or enduring mode, that is not optimized for learning. 
because what we're doing is we're trying to navigate spaces, whether it's curricular spaces, classroom spaces, hallways, or school in general. We're trying to do it in a way that is protective of who we are. Mm-hmm. And, and your brain will prioritize that survival over consuming and processing information. So in the context of, of your question and what I, what I generally, the work that I do is to just simply ask questions of, excuse me, ask students the following question. Do you feel seen and heard and also loved? And if the answer is no to any one of those three, then you have a student that is um, operating from a survival and enduring mode rather than a thrival mode. Also to that point is that educators need to be supported in, in that capacity as well. So using me as an example, there were many days, and I have a couple of these stories in my book as well. There were many days where uh, I would arrive on campus, my heart rate would go up just enough that I could tell, mm-hmm. my palms would get sweaty. Yeah. I, would, uh, I would have to focus on making sure that I'm taking appropriate deep breaths because I knew that I was going to be subjected to something uh, that was going to serve as a type of trauma or a type of othering. And so then now for me as an educator, how much can I focus on the purpose of the work, which is meeting the needs of all the students, if I myself am in survival and enduring mode. And so that's why the whole thing is, for me is really looking not so much at the individuals per se, but at the culture of the environment. When you walk into a classroom, when you walk into a school, when you walk into a district, what is the nonverbal communications on the walls what is the nonverbal communications of the people in the office, the people in the, uh, let's just say in all the offices, the educators, uh, do, you, do you feel that you are seen and heard even if no words are spoken? Now, of course, when you get to the words that are spoken, that's where we get into things like uh, one of the easiest and fastest ways for a teacher to other a student is to not refer to them by their correctly pronounced first name. True. Yeah. So that's one right there. Uh, and, and, and unfortunately, a lot of educators, well, it's, it's, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, I, yeah. I, I, I reject the whole idea around anything that you determine is not a big deal is based on your perception, your perspective, and in some cases, your own bias. Right. So that's the first thing. Now, with the educators, there were many days, and I know this to be true of a lot of educators, not just me, mm-hmm. where they show up on campus No one says hi. No one says good morning. They just go, they sign in, they go to their classroom, they shut the door. Right. So there, so, so all of those things are ways in which I assess the inclusive culture of the learning environment. No, you don't have to be friends and go have drinks on Friday afternoon with your colleagues on campus. Mm -hmm. But what you do have to do is have a degree of a professional courtesy, professional decorum, and a degree of social empathy that you just simply say hi. Now I say professional uh, and I put an asterisk next to that because Mm -hmm. then when I go to a larger context of that, it's the whole idea around who gets to define what is professionalism, who gets to define what the decorum is and all those things. And that's where you get into the situation where I get into my anti-bias and anti-racist work that most of those definitive, uh, those definitions tend Mm -hmm. to be predominantly cis, hetero, white, male centered. Yes. Yeah. And so for me, it's, it's just simply a function of distilling it down to are all the adults and all the learners seen and heard? Are mm-hmm. the learners 
loved in that process. And love is not indicative of physical contact. Love is even something, honestly, it's something as simple as, and I remember this, when I'd walk the hallways during my conference period, or I'd walk the hallways during any given time, first thing in the morning, and I see students that I have, and even students that don't, I don't have, and I'd say good morning by their correctly pronounced first name. That's a type of love, because they've now been seen and heard, and I've addressed them in an affirming capacity. Absolutely. So you, I know you talk about culture, the, the culture of the building, you know, and you can sense that when you walk in. I, Absolutely. I totally agree with that. What, it, people often talk about, and I know the psychologists refer to this idea of psychological safety and the feeling of safety and creating safe spaces. But often that is misunderstood also. So is right. that something that you, you talk about? Is that something you refer to? Or do you sort of keep that idea of safety, the word safety out of it, just to look at the greater picture of it? I, I keep the word safety out of it for two reasons. So during my DEI workshops, I always begin every workshop uh, by displaying a poem called An Invitation to a Brave Space. Because unfortunately in my career, I've been in what has been identified, quote unquote, as a safe space and how that phrase has been weaponized against me. And that's why every time I hear the phrase safe space, I always would raise my hand and say safe for who? So go back to centeredness, identification and dominance. Who gets to determine and define what's safe and what isn't? If I'm going back to the word disruptor, if I'm asking questions that an educator would say, okay, Ken is the disruptor here by asking the right questions, the tough question, how did the adults respond to those? It was usually responded with uh, measures of, uh, that can be aligned with punitive, trying to redirect me to conformity and compliance and reprimand, but yet it was called a safe space. And that's why I would say, well, well safe for who? So for me, it, it is, is I, 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 I remove the word safe. Mm-hmm. I share the poem, brave space. What does a brave space look like? And a brave right. space to quote elements of the poem, it's acknowledging things like we all carry scars and have caused wounds. My favorite line in the poem is we have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow, that it is our brave space together and we must work on it side by side. Right. So that, that, that though, even just those, and those are four, there is a longer poem, but those are the lines that always mm-hmm. stick out to me because ultimately it's a recognition that we all are human, that mm-hmm. we all have ca- carry scars. So all of us carry some degree of scars, some more than others. Sure. We all have caused wounds mm-hmm. and that you have to recognize that there is always room for growth. And that growth begins with me recognizing that I have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. Learning is continuous, not it's dynamic, not static. And so then the other thing is when it comes to our learners is I always say you want an effect, uh, excuse me, an affirming and protective space. See, how does that work? I'm affirming who you are and I'm also protective of who you are. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're not going to be other. Right. I like that. It's even um, more specific and more understood than talking about brave spaces and safe spaces. Because right. you're talking about the actions that need to be done within those spaces exactly. and acted upon within those spaces. And I, I really like that. I'll include the link to the to the Brave Space poem because I think people who are interested in it should be able to solve. That'll be in the show notes with, with everything else. But uh, I've, I've read that poem and I've seen that poem. And, but I, I just like the way you've talked about the actions that someone needs to see in order for them to really feel that safety and right. not the safety for 
whoever has the perspective of the fact that the space is safe. So, right. so I, I love that. Um, can you talk about developing a meaningful sense of self that requires conscious and intentional thinking as being highly valuable since it helps us become more understanding of both our perspectives and ideally serves as an empathetic catalyst for a better understanding of others. We cannot truly understand or empathize the another person until we gain a better understanding of ourselves. I call this self-belonging, but it's really mm -hmm. more than that, right? It is. Yeah, it's, it's the whole idea around the metaphors. Uh, so for your audience, if they're not familiar with the metaphors of the mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors, it's yeah. generally applied in the context of, of consuming texts. So the whole idea, it was developed originally by Emily Style and then also Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, who was at the Ohio State University. And, the, and the, the intent and purpose behind it, if you will, is that I should be able to engage in reading materials that serve as a mirror. In other words, I am affirmed on my cultural identity based on either the authentic voice of the author and or the protagonist in the book. Once I have a better understanding and a sense of self, the next, the next step is for me to utilize that as a framing of a perspective of the different lived experience of someone else. That's where I get the window. I can look into the lives of someone else through an authentic voice. And then sometimes you get the sliding glass door where I can put myself into the lived experience of another to gain a better understanding of their perspective. In my workshops, I expand that to your entire learning experience, period. So it's no longer just the text, it's the representations in math, the representations in science, it's what you put up on the walls, it's what is the messaging, both from the classroom educators and the site administrators and the district as a whole. When we have a better understanding of who we are and how we operate within these systems, and I, I want to add a side note. Sure. Systems are people and people make up systems. And in many cases, the culture of the system is reinforced by the actions of the people. And uh, there's a, a line, it was uh, David Foster Wallace. It, uh, it was giving a, uh, a graduation speech a number of years ago. And he used this whole idea around culture, that culture is this thing that we're a part of, but for the most part, it's invisible. And the metaphor story he told is that there's, a, there's two fish swimming in the water and they go past another fish. And the fish says to the two fish, hey, how, uh, you know, good morning, how's the water? And then they keep swimming. And then later on, they turn and look at each other and they say, well, what the hell is water? That's the <laughs> culture of our learning environments because there are things that exist right. that are so normalized that you don't right. even recognize their existence. I say the same thing about air. We know it's there, but generally you don't pay attention to it until you're deprived of it. Mm -hmm. You get too much of it. Right. Or there's some other thing that that reminds you of it, wind or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing about culture and our learning environments. And so for me, my work is around putting a little bit of dye in that water for you to see it for what it is. When we understand who we are and how we operate within a system and how in many cases what is normalized in the system by default creates conditions for othering, creates conditions for the need for survival, creates the conditions mm -hmm. for the need for enduring. When you recognize your participation as system and going back to that brave space point, we have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow, you then can begin the process of acknowledging that some of your actions perpetuate, propagate or perpetuate that, and then now you can begin to work against them, not disrupt, dismantle. Right. And so that's why for me with educators, it's the self-awareness 
that how, of how you operate within the system and how uh, the culture of the environments, um, not only is it institutionalized, but there are many things that, that I would say are um, in some cases by design destructive towards, uh, in many cases, marginalized and oppressed students. Mm -hmm. Look, yeah. there's a reason why, I'll share this final thing. There's a reason yeah. why I still see to this day things like the following a disproportionately low representation of girls in STEM programs. Right. See, that's normalized. And until you put dye in that water, guess what's going to continue? That data. There's mm -hmm. a reason why I still see, and this is not limited to the U.S., by the way, I still see a disproportionate representation of non-white male students subjected to draconian discipline policies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a reason why here in the U.S. it's called the school yes. to prison pipeline, and it's existed ever since I was in school. Mm -hmm. See, those are things that are normalized. And so for educators, and this would be for your honest, you mentioned I like to push buttons. Here's one. When you are exposed and introduced to information that is not part of what is normalized for you, my question mm -hmm. to all educators is, do you reject it and continue with the status quo? Or do you say, you know what, this is something new. I need to take the time to process it. I need to take the time to analyze my participation in it. And right. then once I understand it, what are the steps I'm going to take to now go against that? Right. And then once you go against it, because you've talked about dismantling, I know you don't mean dismantling and leaving it in a rubble. You're no. talking about dismantling to really pull apart the system and, and then build to something look at, new. And build something new. Yes. That you know, includes everybody that stops the othering and all of those things. I love the visuals, um, like the dye in the in the water um, and the example that you give. Have you found that in your discussions, in your in the way you when you go in and consult, when you go into schools, um, talk to educators, that they need those visuals in order to be able to really see? Because it it's not easy to say what you're saying, obviously, because you are pushing buttons. So having the self-confidence, the, you know, the, the wherewithal, the self-concept to be able to present that and know you're going to get a reaction is one thing. But have you found that it's, it's made it easier for others to understand when they're, you're talking to them when you have these visuals? Yes, I, I'll, I'll say two things. So one, um, what I find to be the most impactful, uh, which is my default, is I operate from a degree of humility. So for example, mm. uh, I always say the first step towards taking the right actions is the awareness piece. So right. in many of my workshops, I share examples of how I was doing the same thing. I'll give mm. you, a, for your audience, I'll give a prime example. When I first started teaching, there were a number of things I did that were normalized. They were the way I was taught. It was what was normalized in, in the context of the learning environment. So one, for example, was grading policies. You have to mm -hmm. use averages, you use a hundred point scale. Uh, you use different types of summative and formative assessment. And you have, um, which I think it's a trigger word to be honest with you, you have high expectations. And I say mm -hmm. high expectations is a trigger word because in my work, rarely ever, do I see that phrase used in affluent white schools? Mm -hmm. It's used with a high degree of regularity in schools or school districts that predominantly serve black and brown children, which tells me that you already have biases before we even begin because high expectations should be normalized. Why do you have yeah. to constantly virtue signal by pointing out we have high expectations? 
Right. Well, if you didn't point it out, then would you have low? So right. <laughs> now for me, again, my operation mm -hmm. is from a degree of humility. Here are the right. things like grading that I did. Here's how that information was presented to me. And here's what I did as a result. So for example, I had a student that pointed out, uh, it was probably about my fifth year in the classroom, mm -hmm. how, um, you know, homework was unfair because he didn't have the resource and support at home to do it. And how uh, he was improving his grade in class, but yet he, he felt that no matter how much he improved it later in the semester, it was, it was a waste of his time because he would never earn an A. And so for me, I'm like, yeah, I hadn't thought about that stuff. See, that's the awareness piece. Right. And so then now I have new information. So then what did I do? Again, I, I stress there, there are five critical consciousness, it's, uh, critical pedagogy. There's five components of critical pedagogy, love, hope, faith, critical thinking, and humility. Mm -hmm. Humility is number one for me. So I recognize that here I have a student that's presenting me with information, putting dye in my water that mm -hmm. I didn't, I wasn't aware of because it's normalized. Right. And so I'm like, you know what? I thank the student. I queried more students in other classes. Tell me how you all feel about homework and about grading, because, you know, this is the grading policy, because this is how we have it set up. Now I'm starting to get more feedback from students like I, we don't really like the homework for the variety of reasons. And of course, I I removed to some degree those who are like, I just don't like homework because I have too much. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, there were the legitimate concerns around which the, sure. the I would say the prevailing um, trend was mm -hmm. we have to do work at home and no one's there to help me. Mm. And so for me, I'm like, okay, I'm never assigning homework again, never assign homework for the rest of my career. And then with the grading thing, it's a, I actually did a co-author with my friend, uh, Nadia, Nadia Razzi. We co-authored a four part series on grading and the whole idea around the averaging thing. And it really, it really clicked into my head. I'm like, holy cow, averaging is not fair. It's inequitable. Mm -hmm. And so on that, on that write-up, so here's, here's another uh, story that ideally will serve as a visual for your audience. So on that write-up, we gave an example, and it's something we borrowed from a blog posting, which student would you want to pack your parachute? So let's say you're going skydiving. Um, okay. Which student would you want to pack your parachute? So student A, over a five-week time period, scores 80, 80, 80, 80, 80. Okay. So their average is 80. Student B scores 65, 72, 90, 100, 100. The averages of those two students, student B has a lower average right. than student A. Mm -hmm. But if you had to pick one of those two students, the student had 80s across the board or the student that rose and ended up the last two grading mark marking periods were 100, which one of those two students are you going to have pack your parachute? Absolutely. Boy, that, that's an obvious answer. Yes. I mean, yet, you're looking about at... You're looking at the improvement. Correct. But think about how often grading is associated with averaging, where yes. it is punitive towards growth. And in that example, you're actually rewarding stagnation. Yes. Or, or, or laziness or the lack of real interest um, or whatever. Yeah. What, whatever. The, bo the yes. bottom line for me was when the students pointed it out, I was like, yeah, yeah I'm not doing that stuff anymore. Yeah. And that's my whole point around die in the water when introduced with new information, regardless of the source. In this case, it was a student, which I always sure. tell, tell teachers, the best and most useful feedback you could get is likely from your learners. Yes. You do want to ask the right question 
And yes. as I shared, be able to discern, okay, you're just complaining about homework just to be a complainer versus, yeah. okay, you're saying that you have no support at home. That's a legitimate concern. Right. And so now what am I going to do as an educator to say you are seen and heard? Mm-hmm. Remember that going back to that. Right. And here's how you are left. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm going to make sure mm-hmm. that you're supported when we have class, right. because ideally I either am the best resource for you, or I can put you in a position to have access to the best resource to support right. your growth in this class. And by the right. way, if you start off at 50 and you improve to hundred, we're going to have dialogue around what does that look like if, since I have to yeah. assign, attach a letter to it. Right. I'm going to account for and give more value to the end results of your growth rather than yes. punishing you from where you started. Remember the brain right. space pond? We have yeah, the isn't right that a to whole idea about learning? Yeah. Thank isn't you. that what learning is supposed to be about? Instead, yes. we, we, you know, we end up not rewarding it. And but you're how, right. But, but my, my, and here's, my, yeah. here's my comment to add to you. Sure. How often do our policies, our systems, and our culture do the exact opposite of that? Yes. Yeah. And and can you imagine? Well, we can because we see the results for those students who constantly are knocking their heads against the walls and feeling that it begins to define who they are. Correct. And you and you wonder by the time they get to middle school or high school, why they don't care anymore or why they don't want to be in school. And going back to where we started, exactly what you said why they don't care anymore, why they're even, uh, uh, why they, they, they're even looking at uh, school is not for me, which means there's no feelings of belonging because Absolutely. there are systemic cultural things that yeah. have told you, you are an other and you don't belong. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think this is an important point for your audience as well. I, when yeah. I work with superintendents, mm-hmm. I always tell the superintendents, if you really want to get a pulse on the lived experiences of students within the district that are under your care, the very first set of students I would encourage you to have dialogue with are the students that dropped out of high school or that are that are incarcerated. Yeah, they'll tell you. Yes, they didn't fail the system. Something in the system failed them. Something failed in them. the system told them you don't belong here. And mm-hmm. that's why they either dropped out or that's why they had no options by the time they finished their school program. Right. Yeah. And so what does the self-talk become? I can't accomplish. I can't succeed. I'm an other. Um, this is why bother. Why bother? This is not for me. I don't belong yes, yeah. here. Yeah. And if yeah. we're we're talk about disruptive behavior, that's that's another you know kind of uh, symptom of all of this too. Correct. And so when you're saying that you know you heard the student and you stopped and you said to yourself, oh, that's something that I hadn't thought about. How fantastic did that student feel because they had brought you a really important piece of information, which could have been completely disregarded and perhaps in the past had been by other teachers. Maybe not, but perhaps had been. Oh, it was. It was by other teachers on campus. But to know that you were going to listen to, to the student and then actually listening to that student and then acting on that once you thought about it and investigated and taken the time, you know, now that you were aware instead of avoiding it. So, so important. And, and that leads to my next question, which is, you know, you talk about sitting on the discomfort. This is a quote from, from you sitting on the discomfort we might feel when looking introspectively and leaning into it, which 
will likely cause us to be uncomfortable. But you suggest where we can use that discomfort as a catalyst for growth rather than a way out or an escape from feeling it. I'd love for you to just sort of expand on that based on what you were just talking about. How do we do that? Feeling uncomfortable is, is never really comfortable. <laughs> it, it's not a it good depends. feeling anytime. No, you're right. It's so the metaphorical story I share in my DI workshops is you go to the gym. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's let's talk our, our physical appearance and our physical health. Right. Are you going to improve your strength or your fitness if you just do what's comfortable? For example, if I like getting on the treadmill and I'm comfortable at three miles per hour, I'll still make a little bit of progress, but am I really going to make the progress um, that I can see a change in my overall physical appearance or my physical fitness? No, if it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's something like lifting weights. What, what, what a lot of uh, educators I share is that when, you know, for example, when I played football, when you're lifting weights, what you're doing is the equivalent of micro tears of the muscle. Mm -hmm. And then during the recovery period, the muscle repairs itself and it builds and it comes back better and stronger. Yes. So the same thing applies to our cognitive and intellectual growth. When you experience degrees of discomfort, I always encourage educators, ask yourself the following questions. What about this situation is making me uncomfortable? Why do I feel uncomfortable based on my lived experiences up to this point? Yeah. And how might I use this information as a catalyst for my own growth? So that the next time I'm asked this question or I'm in this experience, I won't be uncomfortable because I will have grown as a result of the very first time I had the opportunity to yeah. examine, interrogate, and analyze that discomfort. I know a lot of people there, there's comfort in the status quo, but the status quo is not conducive for growth in most people. It's just not. And so right. I, and, and I want to differentiate, um, especially in the context of the workshop I do, the difference between discomfort for growth and guilt and shaming. See, guilt and shaming is discomfort, but that is yes. not a catalyst for growth. If I constantly berate you and tell you how you're incapable of, you're inadequate, or you're, you're, um, you're some, somehow less than, that's where you get into othering, by the way. Othering is not a catalyst for growth. Right. But saying, hey, I haven't, again, with those students, I haven't been exposed to this information before. And I, honestly, it didn't make me uncomfortable because again, remember I mentioned those five components of a critical consciousness, humility. Right. I'm always open for new ideas, right. new information. It might not mm -hmm. change my perspective um, per se, but mm -hmm. if it broadens my perspective, I'm good with that. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, the experiences that you get out of it. And if we go back to the students that, you know, you recommend superintendents or, or um, leaders of schools to talk to first, which is their, their, the, those who dropped out or those who are incarcerated, basically, you know, we're talking about the fact that they ended up with a fixed mindset, that they were told so many times that they were unable to succeed, that they're just not, you know, no matter how hard they try, they're not going to get where they wanted to go. Eventually, they're going to say to themselves, well, that must be me. That's that fixed mindset. That means that I, I can't grow no matter how much I try. And so, right. and we talk about the fact that students need to be in that uncomfortable place 
as students in order to learn. We can't make sure, you know, it can't all be information that they know already, kind of like what you talked about the exercise. We can't stay at this, the, you know, at the same pace every time we go and exercise. It's the same thing with learning. If we're okay. constantly learning the, the math facts that we know already, how on earth are we ever going to, to improve? So, right. and all of this goes back to the fact that we need to look at the systems that are in place that have normalized this and say, we're, we're, we can't do this anymore. We have no. to do something about this. So right. where, where would you say is a, is a good place to start? Let's say, you know, you have a, a student, an educator, an individual who has come to you for advice and they say, you know what, I know there's something quite not right. I'm in my classroom or I'm sitting there as a student and it's just not working for me. What, what would you recommend that they do first? Uh, the first question that's come up. The first question I always ask is, uh, and this is where you get into the diversity piece, is I always ask, who are you learning with and who are you learning from? Mm -hmm. How diverse is your social media uh, feeds? How diverse is your circle? If you are constantly exposed to the same messaging that serves as a both uh, an echo chamber from a verbal perspective and a cognitive perspective, then you're not gonna grow. And, uh, and, and the common retort that I know is weaponized is, uh, is around, well, if, if, if you do that, then aren't you indoctrinating you know, kids are doing this, that, and the other. And I, I, and I always respond saying, listen, in some cases, getting exposed to new information may not change your mind. Right. But what it, we can do is increase the likelihood of you having any degree of social empathy where you say, look, while I may not agree with that, I understand why that's that person or that group of people's right. perspective. So for me, the first step is with you. And it's asking yourself, uh, you know, if I were to look at the last, let's say half a dozen books that I've read, um, mm -hmm. is there a consistency of the authors, their representations of protagonists and the uh, types of stories that they write? Um, the more you expose yourself to um, different narratives, different lived experiences and different people, the more it will broaden your scope of understanding. Uh, and that would be, that, that right there is a sustainable catalyst for growth. I, I, I shared with a group last week where of all the books that I've read over the last couple of months, um, only 10% have been written by black male authors. Wow. And I said, and that's intentional because I, while I read those books, again, those are the mirrors for me. Those are the affirmations for me. Those are the sure. analysis of who I am, but sure. my growth is going to be very limited if that's all I read. All you're uh, reading, and, and yeah. Exactly. And so, I mean, and I've, I've done across the board and, mm -hmm. and I think it has made me not only a better version of myself, but also a better educator, because now, and here's the reason, here's my big pitch, uh, which hopefully to your audience, and this is not limited to the geographical borders of the United States. This is in general, and this is a challenge. Mm -hmm. I did this a number of years ago for one international school that I spoke at, because I basically said, okay, I've been on this campus, I had an opportunity to speak, and I said, here's the thing, you have no staff members that look like me, most of your staff is, is, is white. They self-identify as white, which mm -hmm. I actually even reject the use of that identifier because you had staff members that had uh, Italian ancestry, German ancestry, English ancestry. I'm like, don't, 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 don't turn it into a hegemony of representation. Okay. Right. They all have different, they, even though they self-identify as white, I always, I always say, 
No, I'm not going to accept that. What is your ancestral lineage? Okay, mm -hmm. so that's the first part. The next right. part is I said, okay, if you're if the students on your campus are not being exposed to narratives, let's say from authors or people that look like me, mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but your students, their families, their goal is to be able to attend a university in the United States or in the UK in that order. And they said, yes. I said, now, here's my challenge to you. Do you want your students to be able to set foot on campus, thrive and contribute to campus mm -hmm. culture by being able to navigate cross-cultural spaces? Or are they going to look for students that look like them, talk like them, have the same experience as them, and then create this little myopic bubble, mm -hmm. and they will stay within that for four full years? Right. And bring that back home with them or to their, to their lives. Whatever they, they do, they... their professional mm -hmm. lives. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and then and they I challenge said, themselves. Correct. And I said, the whole idea is you want to be able to do that. And I said, in the end, they eventually, whether it's at that university or some other some other uh, environment, mm -hmm. they will eventually cross paths with someone who looks like me. I, for one, would not want them to buy into the stereotype threats of messaging that they get exposed to uh, mm -hmm. that are everything from I'm overly aggressive, I'm always angry, I'm only my only value is on the athletic field or in the music industry, mm -hmm. all of those sorts of things. I'm like, right. but unless you have that awareness and your intentionality behind broadening right. the experience, that is exactly what you're going to get. And it was yeah. interesting because one of the directors, was, they hadn't thought about that. And then we engaged in further dialogue. And I know one of the things their goal was, their, their immediate goal, they asked me, mm -hmm. well, what's our first step? And, I, and that's why I share it. First step is with mm -hmm. you. The fact that we're now having this dialogue and you weren't aware of this tells me that you either haven't had enough dialogue with mm -hmm. or you haven't even been exposed to a Black male educator who can share these things with you. So right. the first step is who are you learning with and who are you learning from? And then now, how might you uh, provide those opportunities for the educators on campus and then the students on campus? And I said, and one of the easiest entry points to that is to do an audit of the library and then the classroom libraries and look at the representations in the books. That's the first. Right. That's not the only, but that's at least the first step. Yeah. And, you know, because it's so, so difficult and can look so overwhelming, because there's so much else that goes on when we're talking about schools and initiatives and things like that. Being able to not boil it down to something easy, but to bring right. it down to something that is that I'm capable of doing on my own and it won't take up a lot of time. And then right. being successful of that, at that and seeing and challenging my per perceptions and then seeing that and becoming aware of that. Like you said, awareness is you know the first step then right. you can't stop there. It's basically, uh-oh, oh, we, you know, we have a problem and right. we, we need to deal with this. So right. how do we deal with that? And even if you just start with, okay, well, let's look at what, what representation we're having in our language classes, in our you know, subject area classes, like you started out the, the podcast with. What does all that look like? Our, is there representation? And then, you know, you go on from there, but at least you feel like you're taking it in, in steps that you're all able to take uh, right. individually initially and then together uh, as a group. And when that becomes the message, then you have the dismantling, right? Correct. And, and that dismantling is not limited to that. So the follow-up that I do with a lot of, uh, of folks, especially really, and by the way, it's not just limited international schools, it's, it's school district. 
is I say, okay, once you have that awareness to do that, the next step is I would like for you to analyze your recruitment and hiring practices as well. Yes. See, now we're getting into the realm of dismantling because now once you say, okay, we've got the representations in the books, we have the representation in the curriculum, let's look at staffing and let's look at the policies. Mm-hmm. And now maybe there has to be a complete shift in policy. Now we've effectively dismantled. Right. And, and again, like you shared earlier, it's not just dismantle it and then that's it. It's dismantle what we ex- currently have and then right. rebuild something new that ideally is not only just new, but it's also sustainable. Yes. And we're talking about intentionality and messaging yep. so that it is sustainable because, right. you know, in any district, in any international school, there is turnover, turnover of educators, turnover of leadership. If you don't build something that's sustainable and that the messaging is consistent uh, from from administration to administration, teacher to teacher, it it will get lost and you'll end up having to do the whole process all over again, which would really be a shame. And, you know, if we talk about growth mindset and this whole idea of we're constantly growing, we're constantly learning, lifelong learners, it all has to be about that. Ken, this has been really, I, ha- I hate to even slow it down because it's been amazing. Is there anything else you. you wanted to? Yeah, thank you. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about or make sure that um, our listeners know about be- before we finish up? No, I think there's uh, ideally for your listeners, the most salient point to, I would say, begin the process is, as I shared, look at your social media feed, look at the books that you've read podcasts you listen to, uh, I would say all media that you consume, whether it be for professional growth or even entertainment for that matter, uh, and, and to ask yourself, am I being exposed to narratives that affirm and reinforce my own thinking, or am I being exposed to narratives and information that broadens my, my uh, scope of understanding? Right. And especially yeah. in a professional learning capacity, but but not just that. I mean, you can learn. I used to use, uh, just on a side note, I used to use the matrix as a metaphor for social commentary with my students. That was, that was some of my favorite lessons was that movie yeah. around the visuals of the storytelling mm-hmm. as well as the social commentary embedded within the movie. Right, yeah. And constantly challenging yourself and, and really thinking introspectively and becoming aware of the fact not necessarily, like you've said many times, not necessarily because you're going to change that, but how, how wonderful to build empathy and compassion by knowing about and putting yourself in the shoes of others, or at least understanding that there are other viewpoints out there, other right. perspectives. So right. um, Ken, where can people find you? Because I'm sure people will search for you after this podcast. Oh, uh, that'd be great. I mean, best, I'm, I'm on places. I'm on all the socials. Uh, I use Twitter and Instagram quite heavily, although I'm I'm on an Instagram timeout that was supposed to last uh, two weeks and has turned into a month, which oh, is fine. Okay. Uh, I think it's good. To, I, I call it a digital detox. I, I do mm-hmm. it often, and uh, but but I would say the most the the main place that kind of tells you what my socials are is my website, which is kennethshelton.net. That has my bio and it has links to all my social media stuff and. Hopefully members of your audience that are listening to this episode, there'll be at some point, and especially for you and I as well, there'll be a point where we are in the same physical space learning together and we can continue our conversations. 
I hope so. That would be wonderful. And I for agree. those who go to your website, make sure to pick up on your blog posts because they're really um, they're really interesting, especially that series of four blog posts about literature and kind of the um, the uh, ways to look at through literature, a yeah. microscope, the lenses and things like that are, are really interesting. But there are a lot of other blog posts about cultural responsiveness and all that. So I highly recommend going to your website too. Ken, this has been absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate your taking the time. I know how busy you are. Um, and thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's been a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you're inspired by what you heard, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about belonging, check my website, Journeys to Belonging, that's Journeys number two belonging, dot webstarts.com. See you next week.